the muzzleloaders.com podcast, your source for all things muzzleloading. How's it going, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Muzzleloaders podcast, the show where we talk about anything and everything black powder. Today, I am very excited to be joined by Ethan from I Love Muzzleloading, and we are going to be chatting about uh, kits, muzzleloader kits, and um, specifically, why build a kit? Uh, because, you know, you can get one for just a little bit more money and get it pre-built, ready to go out of the box, but still, this time of year, we see kits just go through the roof. I mean, you can't, you know, they come in and they're shipped right out the door. So, um, and Ethan, as somebody who's had a lot of experience building kits and a lot of experience in just the muzzleloader world in general, I'm very excited to get uh, your take on it. So how you doing today, Ethan? I'm doing great, Darren. Thank you so much for, uh, for having me on to talk about this. It's kind of a, a section of, of muzzleloading that I'm really excited about, really passionate about. And I'm, I'm happy to see that uh, you guys are talking about it and that uh, people are continuing to order and, uh, and build their own kits at home and to continue that uh, great aspect of muzzleloading. For sure. Yeah, I'm really excited to for you know to have you on and thank you for joining us on such short notice. Kind of reached out to Ethan last week like, hey, let's let's record a podcast. So, um, but <laughs> he reached out to me as I was like covered in used tissues and watching movies on the couch just like <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so on, no. on the on the upswing here and happy to talk about Yes, yes. Yeah, it's definitely tough to record while you're sick. I mean, it's just brutal. So um, that's a struggle a lot of people don't understand. But, but <laughs> yeah. So, um, Ethan, how long have you been building kits? I think I built my first one in my teens. Um, that's really over 10 years ago now, which is kind of crazy. Um, but I built my first kit. It was a CBA Derringer, a Philadelphia Derringer kit. Um, that my father had won as a prize at a shooting competition well before I was born. And because uh, I think everybody now knows that CVA doesn't make those traditional kits anymore. Um, so that was kind of, that was my first kit experience and it just kind of screwed together. Um, I don't really remember if there's a lot of inletting or anything um, in that kit, but it was a little percussion Philadelphia Derringer kit. And I put the stain on and, and screwed everything together and, I think blued the barrel a little bit and uh, I still have that one and uh, I have never shot it just because it's so small, <laughs> but uh, yeah. I, I still share that sometimes on Instagram or feature it in a video here or there. For sure. Yeah. Well, and it's always fun to keep your first kit ever, you know, around and stuff. So <laughs> yeah, I got it in a little, you know, a little display case in the house, you know, so I can kind of walk by and smile. And... There you go. Yeah. And one thing, you know, a question that we get a lot is, you know, with these kits, uh, most of them are completely fully functional. You know, you just said, you know, you hadn't shot yours before and we get calls like, you know, Hey, if I build this kit, like I can still use it and hunt with it. Right. And that's the case for most, I would say, I'm not aware of any muzzleloader kit that you can't, I'm sure there might be some out there, but. Yeah, there are some manufacturers out there that, that build or, or sell, uh, really just display models where they're non-functioning or, or not meant to function. But um, really all the kits that I've built and I recommend people build are, um, are functional because I think that's part of it. I think when you invest in a muzzleloading kit, like we're talking about here, part of that journey is putting it together and then getting it out and using it, whether that's for, for hunting or just target shooting. Yeah, I agree. And Oftentimes, you know, people are looking to build kits to just save a little bit of money, you know, and we honestly don't usually recommend doing that because if you're doing it just to save money, um, it, it's really not 
worth the savings. You know, there's a lot of effort and work that goes into building a kit. Um, but it's a, it's a really fun project, you know? Definitely. And I'd say, you know, I, I'm cheap. I like to save a little money here and there. And thankfully I have all the tools already that I need, but if you're somebody who doesn't have, you know, a little workshop in the garage or something, um, you know, investing in the right tools to, to finish out your kit, you know, you're going to save a little money. Um, but you know, investing in some of those tools and things, that's going to add up a little bit as well. So that's something to think Mm -hmm. about not to deter anybody. I think, uh, having tools and things at your disposal is always really useful. Yeah, for sure. I mean, everybody who doesn't want to buy a new set of tools, you know, but (laughs) yeah, if, if they're tools, you're not going to use a lot. Um, but so that kind of like, makes me wonder what tools do you need? So like, obviously I've been watching your invest arm kit video that you've been doing. Um, and you have a huge shop full of all the tools you could possibly want for building a kit. But you know, if somebody's just starting out and this is kind of what we talk about in muzzle loading a lot is there's all different levels that you can do in muzzle loading. And if somebody's just starting out, what would you say are just the baseline, um, the baseline except, or, you know, tools that you would need to get that kit accomplished, you know? You know, you can, in my videos, I think I go a little bit deep into it because I, I'm passionate about it. And like you said, I have those tools. Uh, but in those videos too, I try to talk about the very simple tools that you need, the very base level. Um, and I think to do that for a kit, you don't need to go out and invest, you know, hundreds of dollars in your tools. If you're only building one kit, that's it. Um, if you are going to build more, I really recommend you invest in those tools. But just as a, a starting point, I think it's important to have uh, a couple different types of files. Uh, one being kind of a large mill file or, or rough rasp to kind of shape all of the wood, depending on how rough your kit is. And then it's important to have a couple finer files as well. And I recommend trying to go uh, in a, a kind of a graduation of roughness kind of from rough like a rasp to a fine finishing file and have a couple in between there uh, to help you finish that you know be it the wood or the metal that you're working on Um, and really once you get into kind of the fine files you don't need to go super fine really one fine file is going to be enough because it's cheaper to invest in some sandpaper to get kind of a finer fit and, uh, and polish on your parts as you're working on things. Um, from there, I recommend kind of having a couple different kinds of chisels, uh, but really a lot of the kit manufacturers recommend having a Dremel with a couple different kinds of, of bits or wheels for that Dremel. So it's really kind of uh, up to you and what you're comfortable with. I, I like to use hand tools, so I, I, like, I recommend a couple different kinds of chisels, one of them being a small palm skew and uh, a couple different sizes of small gouges as well. And those can run, you know, 15, 20 bucks uh, each chisel, you know, so maybe investing in a couple different parts for your Dremel might be a little more cost effective for you there. Um, But from there, I like to have an X-Acto knife or some kind of carving knife uh, to help with that inlay process, you know, depending on how rough the kit that you're working on uh, is, it's nice to have an X-Acto knife or a thin knife blade to help you scribe around those parts. Uh, Thankfully, the Invest Arms kit that I'm putting together right now really didn't have to do a whole lot of inletting. I had to do a little bit on the tang to get it to where I really wanted it to be. I think I could have muscled it together um, and, mm-hmm. and gone around some of the, some of the inletting there, uh, but kind of 
to get the finish that I wanted on it. I did a little bit of work there, but it really wasn't much. I think I told you it was, you know, maybe half an hour, 45 minutes of really slow inletting to get that done with some chisels. And I could have done that a lot quicker with a Dremel. Um, and really, I think that's really all you would really need. And that might even be overkill, depending on what the manufacturer, rec you know, uh, recommends uh, mm -hmm. for your tools. And from there, you're really into you know, like metal finishing products, you know, whether that's bluing or browning or, or brass black, and then maybe some wood stain here and there, and maybe some wax or oil to go on top mm -hmm. of that, depending on what you're blending. Uh, with that Invest Arms kit that I'm that we've talked about here a little bit, I'm actually going to do like the faux striping that we saw in a lot of the uh, later trade rifles that headed out west to where you guys are at. So that's going to be a few extra steps, and I'm, I'm planning on a couple other techniques for that, but that's definitely not uh, required to, to put together one of these kits. Yeah, you talk about the faux striping. Is that kind of like the, you know, like the tiger striping, for lack of a better term, that you see on, like some of the Petersolis have it and stuff? Yeah, yeah. So um, for maybe listeners who aren't as experienced with it, in the, like traditional American long rifles, we saw really period and really accurate, uh, or sorry, we saw uh, it was really common to see curly maple. So you had curved, you had curled wood grain in the stocks to add a lot of detail and really beauty to the rifles. But as we got into more of the industrial age and uh, you know, that wood, that naturally curly wood was more expensive. And, but as we became, uh, as we began producing rifles more and more, uh, we started to come up with kind of fake ways to put that curl in there. And so a lot of the trade rifles coming out of the, the early and mid 1800s actually had that striping painted on uh, to simulate that quality natural wood grain. And it, uh, it became a really neat artistic flair, I think, for a lot of those rifles. Interesting. So people have been just doing that sort of painting. That's not a modern thing to replicate that. That's been going on for, you know, over, you know, 150 or better years. Yeah, yeah. I haven't seen too many original uh, flintlocks. In fact, I haven't personally seen any original flintlocks that had that. Um, that were like full stock long rifle, I should say. Now, I was actually got to get hands on with an original unit that had been painted like that uh, from the 1830s or, or early 1840s. Uh, if you're interested in it, Mitch Yates uh, did a, a big blog post, I believe, on his website documenting his research on that technique and how he replicated it on a client's rifle. And that's what I'm going to be using uh, to mm. try to replicate that in mine. That's cool. Yeah. And I think that is also part of the reason why people want to build a kit, you know, because um, there's that extra level of customization and there's all different levels of kits too. just, you know, in my, I honestly have really limited experience when it comes to kits and, um, you know, some in traditional really inlines are kind of my, uh, more of my specialty, but, um, and that's why I'm really excited to have you on Ethan, get your perspective on this, but even the kits that we carry, the kits that I see, the kits that I'm familiar with here in our space, um, there's a wide variety of different, you know, there's more raw kits like the invest arm are a little bit more raw, whereas the traditions are a little bit more, um, you know, cut and dry. Um, and as far as the stock goes. And so, and I think that there's even other ones, you know, like I know that I think it's the Kibler kits, right? They're even more raw than that. Is that right? I would say they're actually more refined um, because the, the Kibler Jim uses uh, everything is CNC. Um, so really mm. with one of his kits, you can drop all the hardware in 
uh, a lot like one of the large, you know, like the Invest Arms of Traditions kits and uh, do a little bit of woodworking and you're done, you know, with just a little mm -hmm. bit of sanding to get some of the machining marks off and, and you're good to go. Uh, they do, he'd, on the, uh, on his colonial rifle, there is a little bit more wood there that uh, you're able mm -hmm. to do a little bit more inletting if you want to add in a thumb piece or a cheek piece or something. Um, mm -hmm. But I would, I would really consider those uh, just about as done as it gets in uh, mm -hmm. the kits that I've put together. So I've put together a, a traditions, that old CVA, uh, this invest arms and the, uh, the Kibler Southern Mountain rifle. Interesting. And so if you were going to, if somebody was listening to this, they never built a kit before and you were recommending a specific type to get into would, you know, which one would you recommend? Do you think? Uh, I get asked this a lot and I really recommend people build, uh, really one of the traditions pistol kits. If it's one of their, if it's your first muzzleloader and you know, you want to build a kit or if it's your first kit, I recommend, uh, one of the traditions percussion pistol kits, especially if it's your first muzzleloader ever. Um, I think percussion locks are a little bit easier to get used to and get started with. And the pistol kits are smaller, so they're a little bit cheaper. You're not out as much if you end up not liking it. Um, but it's a little bit easier to, to work on that smaller kit, I think. There's a little bit less to do, and it's, a, it's less intimidating, I think. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And, you know, another thing, that another question that we get a lot too, Ethan, is... Uh, people are looking to buy kits. We touched on this a little bit earlier. People are looking to buy kits to save money a lot of times. And um, we kind of got off on a rabbit trail about tools and all that kind of stuff. But I want to uh, sit on that a little bit more because I think that what we usually recommend is, you know, if you're doing it just to save money, you may as well just spend a little bit more and get one that's pre-built. Um, but if you want to do something, you know, if you want to get the chisels and you want to kind of relive that you know that part of history do the customization you know do the engraves and you know all that or the inletting and stuff like that the kit is the way to go but kind of what is your experience as someone who's built several kits i think that if you if you're really just looking at it to save money and uh i think like you, i agree with you guys that it's it's easier to spend the extra you know 50 or 60 bucks whatever it is and get the one that's finished out if that's really what you're uh, concerned about what you're, you know, is conscious on your mind. Um, I mean, if you really, if you really want to save money, I suppose you could just, uh, you could just dry fit all the parts and, uh, and, and slap some stain on it and go from there. But I think if you really want a muzzleloader that you can, you can be proud of and enjoy uh, for generations really to come, I think it's, uh, you know, building the kit and, uh, and going through and making those decisions about the stain color about the metal finish, I think that's really uh, the more important aspect of building a kit over the, the early introductory cost savings that you might see at the checkout. I think that that's part of it too, is, you know, a lot of the pre, you know, if you get like a Pedersoli, Pedersoli hand makes everything. Um, and so theirs are specifically period correct to specific muzzle loaders. But, you know, if you get just a general Kentucky rifle and stuff like that, it's going to be a little bit it's period correct, but, you know, if you wanted to really go into the weeds, you know, and go to the shows like you do, you could pick a specific muzzleloader from history and replicate it, you know, as close as humanly possible with a kit. You have that to freedom, you know. Yeah, there are, I mean, we're talking about, I think, a lot of the introductory kits out there, uh, but there's a ton of, of more complicated kits out there that are literally based on original pieces that are in private and in public collections 
Um, so there's a, a company called the Rifle Shop that I had no idea, but I had a chance to, to hold on to an original 1600s uh, English flintlock that had made its way here to the country. And I was mm-hmm. talking to some friends about it. I was just geeking out over it because it's just a massive flintlock. And uh, the rifle shop actually offers a kit of that specific musket because mm-hmm. they, they got a hold of it and were able to measure it. And so you can recreate that specific piece of history, which I just find absolutely fascinating. And now it's on my, yeah. that's on my wish list now. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's cool. That's cool. Someday. For sure. Yeah. And I know that you are making your invest arm and you're modeling it after um, a specific muzzleloader. I can't remember his name. Uh, he has a weird name. It's Liver Eating Johnson. Liver Eating Johnson. When I saw that in your video, I took to the internet immediately and I was like, I have to know what <laughs> what this is all about. Like. <laughs> So let's yeah, so it's got the uh, it's got the faux striping on it. Um, it's been aged, I think, very naturally. Um, but we're going to go through and, and put some bone black on it that I've got and uh, kind of age some of the corners and some of the wear or some of the areas that are high wear for that piece. Um, mm-hmm. But that's something I like to do is even if I'm not recreating a very specific one, because I think if we if we got out the the micrometer and things and tried to measure. <laughs> um, between the original and this one, there'll be some differences, but it's, mm-hmm. it's fun to take inspiration from history. I think when you're building a muzzle loading kit, even if it's not going to be exact, but trying to find those little elements here and there and, uh, and use those on your, on your kit, because you kind of, you can go through the instructions and, and come out with a functional, you know, nice looking muzzle loader. But uh, I think really with the kits, you have the opportunity to make something really your own. And uh, and some that you can pass on to your kids and grandkids. So why not make it a little, make it a little more special for you? Yeah, I I totally agree. And um, so I think as far as just the complications of making a kit, you know, because you can make it as simple as you want. Like you said, I actually knew a guy that literally just dry fit everything, put all the parts in. He didn't bother with staining or bluing or any of that stuff you just put it all together but you could also go really in depth with it um and on the in-depth side i heard a lot of talk about patina and you know ways of getting good patina and making it look very uh you know weathered and worn what are some of your methods of doing that i think really when you start talking about wanting to age or antique something like one of these kits it's important to accept that it's going to take some time I think everybody wants the the one and done. Um, but if you really want to make it look nice and uh, not like you're going to want to redo it in a few months when you start, you know, you, you get it out for the next season or your next rendezvous or something, and you're kind of like, oh, you know, I might want to redo that. I think it, uh, it takes a lot of time and it takes some layers. Uh, so even some of the contemporary builders I talk to, they might spend weeks or months just on antiquing um, their parts and things. Now, I'm not saying that you have to do that to, to get a nice finish, but what I found is that it is it takes a few layers. So even on uh, even like your like a simple uh, hardware bluing or browning or, or brass black, I think it takes a good two or three layers of that of putting it on and taking it off before you start to get something that uh, looks a little more natural. So like uh, on brass black, my go-to is to to black it, let it sit for whatever the the bottle says. And then I'll take a wet scotch bright pad and start rubbing that brass black off of there. And being wet, 
it's going to take away, uh, it's not going to take away all of the black at once. It's going to leave you some about 50% grays in there on that black, which I just kind of found this just by experimenting with it and, and playing, you know, just in the shop in an afternoon, just trying different things and going that route. Um, and really that goes the same for kind of a, a bluing. Now browning is a little bit more permanent because it's not a top coating. So that's not going to necessarily work the same. Um, but uh, when it comes to brass black and, and hardware bluing, I think it's good to put on a coat, uh, take some of it off, don't take all of it off, and then reapply your coating and then kind of repeat that process until you have the look that you want. Um, and then as you do that more and more, you're going to get a darker, darker finish. Um, so if you want something that doesn't look new, you're going to want to go through, you know, at least three coatings of that process, putting it mm. on and taking it off. And then when it comes to kind of your, uh, your metal browning or your hardware browning, uh, it, it comes down to leaving that browning solution on there for a longer period of time. <clears throat> Excuse me. So the, the browning is gonna actually be rusting. Uh, it, it depends, I think there might be some like faux browning solutions out there, I'm not sure, I guess, but um, a real tried and true hardware browning is actually gonna be rusting that metal. And so mm -hmm. it's, it's important to keep an eye on it, but if you want it to be a little bit more pitted, a little rougher, you're gonna leave that browning solution active for a longer period of time before you neutralize it. It's always mm -hmm. important to neutralize your browning solutions because you don't want to um, come back after a week and have some major pits in your barrel that you didn't intend to there. Yeah. <laughs> but then, you know, that you can even get into kind of the wood antiquing uh, and really, kind of your base level for that's going to be just some, some bone black or um, staining different areas a little bit darker or putting on stain and then kind of sanding or filing sections of your stain out of the wood as much as you can and reapplying to try to get some different tonal uh, variation there with your color. That's the big, when we talk about aging or antiquing some of this stuff, it's really just about bringing in variation and change um, so that everything's not uniform. But when it comes to all of this too, you can go another step. <clears throat> Sorry about that. You're good, you're good. Okay. But when it comes to all of this too, you can go another step apart from kind of your chemical solutions. You can really get physical with it. Um, so you can put all of your parts into a box with some like rusty chains or nails or something. Um, this even comes down to your stock too. There'll be folks that uh, will smack or rub rusty hardware on their on their wood and on their hardware pieces for their kits and that will impart uh, <clears throat> and that will impart nicks and dings and scratches in uh, in what you're using too in kind of a random pattern to try to emulate that you know something carried along the trail for years and years so there's a it really comes down to what you want if you're looking to that, uh, kind of aging or antiquing your kit like that to make it look a little less new and uh, you just have to be a little bit creative with it and, uh, and be willing to take some risk there <laughs> about yeah. beating up your, uh, your parts and pieces. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One, um, you know, you said it takes time. I think some of the best, you know, you talk about patina, the best patinaed muzzleloaders I've ever seen are the ones that pe the people I know have had for 30 or 40 years and just use them a lot, you know, and it's just an, a natural patina. They've been to hundreds of rendezvous and, and gotten dirty and stuff, you know, um, 
And as far as the bluing and browning process, uh, is there one that is more period correct than the other for specific purposes, or are they both kind of six of one, half dozen of another? You know, I haven't done a whole lot of research on that, you know, with primary documentation. I think uh, in my experience, though, coming off of or coming out of a shop or an assembly line, originally uh, things would have been pretty much bright, meaning there had there wouldn't be a, the the iron hardware like your barrel and maybe your trigger guard, your lock. Locks may have been, uh, you know, colored or, or case hardened in some respects, depending on the era and the shop that they're coming out of. But things like your barrel, your trigger guard, your ramrod pipes and things, butt plates, toe plates, uh, what really would have been left bright. And that's for both your hmm. iron and your brass. So any patina there would have been added in naturally, like you've been talking about carrying it on the trail and, and taking out and going shooting with it. Interesting. And so back in the day, in order to like bluing, in order to prevent, um, you know, to protect the barrel, did they just use oils and things to do that or... From my understanding, yeah, that would just have been, you know, some oil, some bear grease, you know, on there to keep things from rusting, just in kind of your normal cleaning regimen, like we would have seen uh, from Mm -hmm. any of those time periods. If you're interested in that kind of stuff, a lot of the military documentation still exists on their nightly cleaning routines and things, which Mm -hmm. should document what they were allotted for their cleaning supplies and what they used and uh, what kind of uh, how clean they were expected to be because they, you know, a couple hundred years ago, they still had all the same issues that we have today. Um, you know, if you left your charge in overnight, you know, you didn't know if it was going to go off in the morning or you still had, if you didn't clean it that night or that day, you know, you could still have some rusting or pitting in there. So they were really meticulous about that to keep their, keep their muzzle loaders in order. Yeah. Well, and it's especially important, you know, and I'm at, it's tough every time I go to a rendezvous and I'm like reloading and you know doing all this stuff. I'm like, man, I could not imagine doing this in a military context. Like, <laughs> like imagine just the stress. Like, I've dryballed just under completely normal circumstances before. I couldn't imagine you're being shot at and trying to you know do all this stuff. You know. Yeah, yeah, it'd just be crazy, wouldn't it? Oh, it'd be insane. Um, but uh, so out of all the kits that you've built, which one do you think has been your favorite kit build so far? For me, really, it's the it's my Kibler Southern Mountain Rifle. For nothing mm-hmm. else than it's my favorite kind of locale, era, and uh, and kind of, of long rifle. I love the pictures coming out of the American South of of uh, you know all sorts of people, really, from men, women, and kids uh, standing there with with no shoes on. You know, they're pretty rough looking, but they've got this beautiful long flintlock or, or caplock mm-hmm. rifle. Um, I just love that. Uh, you know, just seeing those pictures of those people. And that's what I wanted on, uh, on my, one of my, one of my personal rifles. I wanted one of those long, long, long rifles. So it's barrel is about 46 inches. Yeah. 46 inches long. So it's a really wow. long barrel. Yeah. Um, but, uh, it's got a beautiful, it's got a little bit of curl in the cherry stock and, uh, all of the hardware on it is iron and it's finished with, um, a couple coats of Brownells Oxfo blue. So it's a really light gray. It's starting to age in a little bit as I shoot. Mm. And um, in that, with the finish on that stock, I get asked a lot about it. I didn't put any stain on it. I let the natural cherry mm. wood be its color. And be, just because of how cherry wood is genetically, it's made up, it'll darken over time in sunlight. So you'll see mm. a lot of folks go through and, and put some bone black or something or, or aquafortis maybe even. 
on their cherry wood and, and really make it dark right out the gate. But I wanted to kind of let it age in naturally. It had such a beautiful curl in the stock. I didn't want to cover it up. And I just kind of wanted yeah. it to accent itself uh, with time. Yeah. And so you said you did oil the stock though, right? Like with the... Yeah, I put uh, just some Danish oil on it, which is kind of, a, I mean, I think it might have just a little bit of yellow tint to it, but it's really not noticeable. Got it. And that's just to keep moisture out and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, it just kind of helps seal up the wood. Yeah. Interesting, man. So you're you're an artist. See, I think I would get into it. I'd get into a kit project and I'd just be like, okay, what's the, the quickest point from point A to point B? You know, <laughs> I, yeah, I'm not as much of an artist as you, I don't think so. But there is really an art to it. I mean, to the patina, to the antiquing, to everything. So. And that's even if you, you know, it might, even my traditions Hawking kit uh, that I built a couple of years ago now, and just like this Invest Arms kit and that CVA kit, um, I think it's really fun to go through and, and take your time with it and kind of take it as a creative exercise. I think uh, mm-hmm. to get kind of woo-woo hippie about it, but we're really tactile creatures, which I think is what draws people even today into muzzle learning. But, um, you know, taking your time on one of these kits and, and really enjoying and, and experiencing the process from start mm-hmm. to finish, I think is, you know, if you're only going to build one kit, you know, take the time and, and really enjoy it, experiment with it. I think yeah. even if you're not artistically inclined or, or don't enjoy making art or being creative, I think you'll find yourself enjoying it down the road. We've actually had, um, along those lines, we had people send in pictures of some just amazing uh, inletting that they've done. It's, in, it's inletting in the stock, right? That's what you'd call it. Yeah, that's when you're putting like a, you know, like a little brass or silver or steel piece into the wood. Yeah. Yeah. So inletting and then, yeah. And then what is, well, like if someone's just doing carvings and stuff on the stock, what would you refer to that as? I'd say that's just carving myself. Just carving. Yeah. So he, the, we had one guy send in some pictures. I think I actually posted it on our Facebook page, but just some of the most amazing carvings that he's done, like just in his stock. And I was like, that's just incredible. You know, I, I can't even imagine. So. But, um, yeah, that's yeah, why I, yeah. I recommend people try to look up, you know, just some original rifles, even if they're not from your period, that, that the kit that you're building, just to get some inspiration on that and, uh, you know, print those off and, and have them at your workspace and, you know, or, or get out a notebook or a sketch pad or something and, and, you know, mm. start thinking about that stuff. Even if you're just thinking about ordering a kit or you're waiting for it to, to arrive, you know, it can be kind of a way to, to start thinking about that process and, and get your, start getting your hands dirty now while you wait. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I think even if you don't have artistic ability, you know, if you don't have the ability to do a carving in your stock that just looks amazing, I really think that anybody can build a kit. You know, I really think there are there are certain skills that, you know, might be helpful. You know, what, what are some skills you think that'd be helpful in building a kit? I really think with modern kits, man, it just comes down to some patience, I think. Mm-hmm. You know, I uh, even the... The traditions kit, you know, had a, I think they famously have a little bit of tinkering you have to do with the, with the trigger guard inlet. Um, this Invest Arms kit, really, I had one that, uh, you know, inletting the tang a little bit was the only work that I had to do there. Uh, I think it just comes down to, to being patient with it myself. Mm-hmm. The, the technology at our disposal now and the kit manufacturing technology especially is just really keen you don't you don't have to be a, a gun builder you don't have to be an artist you can really just drop it in and plug and play uh, i mean that mm-hmm. best arms kit i spent the afternoon i think i, I texted you about it uh put it together there and by the 
you know, after that couple hours, I could have taken it out and uh, started sighting it in, even just in its rough shape, you know, and gone out hunt, hunting mm -hmm. with it. It's really easy. It's really simple. If, if, if you have the, the patience and, uh, and carve out a little time, I think every, anybody will be fine putting together one of those kits. Yeah. And I mean, you say patience. Most people are like, no, any, anything but patience. <laughs> if I, if I, I'd go to college before I have to be patient, you know. But <laughs> I think that that's honestly, if I had to pick, you know, one thing that I really enjoy about the muzzleloader community because I've worked here for a lot of years but I've really kind of started getting into the community this past year being in marketing and um meeting guys like you and our local people at our you know local shoots and stuff like that if I had to pick one thing that I think was my favorite about muzzleloading it'd probably be patience you know because today our world is so saturated with instant gratification and that's really not good for the human mind you know and really learning to wait and like when you're at a rendezvous your phone is out of sight you're not concerned about what's happening at work or whatever you're just literally walking from event to event talking to people and you know you have to be patient it take you you can't just rapid fire like an ar you have to you know there's patience in the loading process and um, i really think that's special and i think it might drive some people nuts at first but if you really give it a chance i think it would really uh, not only would you really enjoy it, but I think it's really good for the human mind, you know? Definitely. I think it's important to have things that we, we can stop and, and slow down with. I think mm -hmm. we're doing so much all the time now. And I think muzzleloading serves as the perfect vehicle for anybody interested in the outdoors and in shooting sports to continue that, you know, that interest in the outdoors and in shooting sports, but, uh, but slow down a little bit and experience something a little bit differently. And I think that comes into any aspect of muzzleloading. If you're yeah. out there, you know, shooting competition or if you're shooting in your backyard or if you just like making the stuff. I mean, I know a ton of people that really are interested in, in hunting or shooting, but they love making the equipment and the gear that goes along with muzzleloading and making mm -hmm. things with their hands. I think um, I talk about it a lot, but the, the exit of shop class, I think in, um, you know, contemporary education, at least in public education, is a real disservice to people. And I think things like muzzleloader kits, even if you're not at all interested in muzzleloading and, and dressing up or, or any of it, if you go out there and, and you build a muzzleloading kit and just stop and slow down a little bit with it mm -hmm. and go through that process, when you're done. Even when I finish a kit after finishing several, when I'm done and I, I pick the thing up for the first time when it's done, it's oiled, it's stained, it's ready to go. I'm just mm -hmm. like, just grinning ear to ear because yeah. it's so cool to go you through did that, that You did that. Yeah. And that's something that people need more, I think. I agree. I think that the human mind really benefits from progress. I was reading a book the other day of just, um, if you just go out and go for a walk, when you're, when you walk, your brain gives you little bits of dopamine because your brain feels like you're making progress on something, you know? And, you know, I think it's the same thing with muzzle loading you know you're slowing down you're putting your hands to work on something and that's something I, I don't do I haven't put my hands to work it's probably since I was you know in high school for a job at least you know and I think a lot of people are in the same boat where you know when you use your hands to build something your brain really benefits from that dopamine and you know it's it's natural like that's so good for your body yeah 
Awesome. Yeah. Well, you know, Ethan, I really want to be considerate of your time. I can see that it's getting dark outside there. So um, we'll go ahead and wrap this up. I have so much that we could cover in this. I'm really enjoying our conversation. So we will definitely have to have a part two. Um, if you guys want to have a part two of muzzleloader kits, let us know in the comments below. And um, also you send us a message on Instagram, look us up. If you want us part two of this, let us know because I really enjoyed it and always enjoy talking to Ethan. So um, but you know, if you guys want to support the podcast, be sure to hit that subscribe button and leave us a review on the audio platforms. Cause that's going to help our show, help get our content into the hands of people that need it. And also I, uh, Ethan, if you want to chat about chat about, I love muzzleloading at all. I would love for you to kind of plug your content because I absolutely really you know, love your content. Well, thanks man. I really appreciate it. And I appreciate being able to come on the show and, and talk about it because I'm just really passionate about muzzleloading. And that's where my website, I love muzzleloading.com really just kind of started is I wanted a place where I could talk about everything that I love about muzzleloading. And mm -hmm. uh, so you can find, you know, find us everywhere really on, uh, on YouTube and a couple of the other uh, alternate video sharing platforms, Instagram and Facebook and things. But uh, we have a podcast as well, talking to different muzzleloading enthusiasts, about what they love about muzzleloading, but uh, really try to cover all aspects of it, just like you guys do. And uh, try to, you know, bring more attention to the great thing that is the sport and the community behind muzzleloading. Awesome. Yeah. And if you guys, you know, if you guys are listening to the podcast and you haven't checked out Ethan's content, definitely recommend looking up. I love muzzleloading. Um, he's doing a kit build right now and there are not very many good resources on YouTube as far as how to's on building a kit. So um, if you're getting a kit this Christmas, definitely check out Ethan's uh, podcast and uh, his, you know, kit build and his content. It's great. And uh, yeah, thank you guys so much for watching and we'll see you guys in the next episode.